0: Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Cook.
1: Welcome once again to another edition of Good Books Radio. I'm your host this week, Dr. John Cook. Good Books Radio is a product of the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley as a service to the community and to public radio. With me today is Dr. Kyle Longley, he is Snell Family Dean's Distinguished Professor of History and Political Science at Arizona State University. He is the author of numerous books, including In the Eagle's Shadow, The United States in Latin America, Senator Albert Gore Sr., The Marinci Marines, A Tale of a Small Town in the Vietnam War. And the book we're going to be talking about today is a fascinating read. If you were around at that time, you're going to love this. LBJ's 1968. Power, Politics, and the Presidency in America's Year of Upheaval. Dr. Longley, welcome to the program.
0: Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. This
1: was a great read for me because it brought back so many memories. Um, And I know that most people are aware that 1968 was a turbulent year. But for LBJ, probably more than anybody else, it it weighed heavily on him.
0: Well... You know, I always open with the idea that LBJ called it a year of a continuous nightmare. Mm -hmm. And I think that pretty much sums it up, that he was dealing with things that are probably unparalleled in American history since Lincoln with uh, the Civil War, World War II, of course, with FDR. But, I mean, it was just a year that was so tumultuous, and it was sort of a point of inflection in American history.
1: Mm-hmm. And we want to talk about how much Vietnam weighed on him, but let's start with the State of the Union address, which is where you start. Um, he uh, he he wrestled with this. He revised it numerous, numerous times, and he thought about declaring his desire not to run again at, at this time. Uh, he didn't do that. So, so how did this go?
0: <laughs> well, what it was is it's very interesting, and I use that sort of as the background chapter to sort of set up what the rest of the book is going to be about. Mm -hmm. And really, that State of the Union highlights, you know, the major challenges. I think, you know, the first thing that stands out, as you've already noted, is he brought Vietnam to the forefront, which in many ways, I think, really contributed to it falling flat on its face. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Vietnam is just going to be the arsenic that just continues to uh, poison the presidency by 1968. And so that's important, and that ties then into this idea that he was thinking about uh, withdrawing at that time from the uh, Democratic primary and focusing on trying to uh, you know, fashion a peace in Vietnam. So we're going to see that later play out uh, a, a couple of months later. But he ultimately decides against it, tries to push forth, but he's facing a very different Congress after 1966, an extremely conservative one compared to what he faced beforehand. Mm-hmm where the Democrats lost 47 seats in the House in 1966. So it's a very different place. Uh, and so he's just wrestling with so many of the issues that are going to be highlighted in the whole year, including Vietnam. The,
1: those those were difficult times. And I, I like the fact that in this first chapter you have a picture of him with his grandson and his dog, and he's singing with his dog to entertain his grandson. Yes. But uh, uh, it, it was difficult. I mean, like many midterm elections, it was horrible for him because he had done so much uh... in sixty four sixty five that he wanted to accomplish with regard to civil rights and other issues that were important to him um, but along came this new congress that he was battling with and he couldn't accomplish nearly as much as he could before
0: no and that's the thing and in the congress that's left there even his own party you have people who are trying to undermine him including people like wilbur mills who controls the house ways and means committee and every time he brings forth something new uh they just knock it down. And I also think it is highlighted and important to contextualize the race rights that it occurred in the summer of nineteen sixty seven. It's really put the country on edge and, you know, especially these Southern Democrats, which they argue, well, this disproves what happens when you give these people uh freedoms. And they're trying to push back on everything that Johnson had accomplished in the uh, period 64 and 65.
1: Mm -hmm. I wasn't clearly aware of things as a young person in the 60s in Louisiana, because Louisiana's Democratic primary pretty much determined who was going to win offices in the state. But the distinction, Dixiecrats versus Democrats, is an important one, isn't it?
0: Well, it's extremely important. And, you know, you, his biggest thorn in the side is someone like Strom Thurmond, mm-hmm. uh, who had been a Democrat, but by this point has switched over to the Republican Party. And you see that transition ongoing. And we know it's directly related to the civil rights movement and Johnson's support of it, that this transition is going to just continue. It started with Thurmond in '48 with the Dixiecrats. George Wallace is going to represent it in 1968 of this frustration with the Democratic Party for their support of uh, civil rights. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, let's start with uh, – we'll just kind of bear in mind that Vietnam is weighing on him all the time uh, Mm -hmm. and the issues of uh, stopping the bombing and trying to get the Paris peace talks to work and all of that. But let's start with the first thing that happened uh, early in the year of 68, and that is the Pueblo incident
0: most people have forgotten about the Pueblo incident, but it's where the U.S. Uh, intelligence ship, the Pueblo, is seized by the North Koreans, and 82 uh, American sailors are uh, placed and become hostages. And, of course, you know, there's the war cry of, you know, we need to bomb them, we need to punish them for this. But LBJ is going to have to walk a very fine line, because its ultimate goal is getting those 82 Americans returned home alive. And if he'd bombed or if he'd responded in a negative sense, the North Koreans would have just uh, killed him. So, you know, and they also would have opened another front in this war uh, that we were so involved in Vietnam that we could not afford a second front.
1: We were, we were stretched pretty thin back then. Oh,
0: very thin. And that's what General Wheeler, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, says. There's no way we can respond to this other than, you know, uh rely on uh diplomatic um, you know maneuvers because again do you want them dead or yeah. we're just over uh extended both in Europe uh you know it's it's affecting our geopolitics Uh, considerations all across the world because Vietnam is just there and it's hanging over us.
1: Right. You know, uh, uh, we can't ignore the fact that the Cold War is still very hot at at this time, and I don't think the Cold War is an apt term. I prefer proxy wars because that's what seemed to be going on. While the nukes stayed cold, we were constantly involved somewhere in some issue and the Pueblo incident is indicative of that. I'm, we don't really know for sure if uh, the Pueblo was an intelligence-gathering ship, right, and they, right. we don't know if they intruded into North Korean waters or were captured outside that. We don't. We can't really prove that one way or the other.
0: No, we can't prove it, and it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, they took the ship, and, again, Johnson's put in a very poor situation. And, you, you know, you have Congressman Mendel Rivers from South Carolina saying, well, you know, let's pick out one of their cities and just nuke it and johnson's just like this is not doing us any good and this is going to last for a year but i think this is one of the uh, events that just sort of highlights the continuities between 1968 and 2018 that the north koreans have been doing this and they've been seeking this uh sort of attention for you know five decades and we still haven't learned how to deal with them because we don't understand them.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and I guess uh, to Johnson's credit, what's important is that he used patience. He didn't want to lose those sailors, and he didn't want to provoke something, and he didn't want to get into another theater of war, which, he, you know, Korea still hasn't signed a peace agreement, only a, a, a cessation. On this, this, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, he was being cautious and appropriately so.
0: Yes, and that's what I praise him in the book for. You know, he showed caution, he showed restraint. And I think Johnson's a very different man in 1968 versus what he was in 1965. I think Vietnam has humbled him to a large degree, Mm -hmm. and he has gotten a lot more... Uh, restrained and the humility has helped in this case not to do something rash. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, he does get the uh, sailors freed. It's in December of 1968 after a long time. And, you know, he goes up, uh, so far at one point to say, Well, you know, I'd stand in the middle of the street, buck naked, if they meant getting these young men <laughs> home, back home. Now, that's not an image that anyone really wanted to see or, or visualize, but it is sort of representative of how he felt about the situation, and it wore on him.
1: Uh, the president had an education, but he wasn't always classy. I mean, there's the the scene where he's in a private meeting with uh, uh, the press, and they say, why are you continuing any unzips his pants for them.
0: (laughs) Right, and says, this is why, and pulls something out, and says, this is why. I mean, he (laughs) could be crass. But, you know, you already brought up a point that I like to highlight about the book, is that, you know, when he was with his grandson and he's, you know, sort of uh, with his uh, dog, you know, one person has already uh, said something about this, I humanized Lyndon Johnson more than what most of his biographers do, that he was a human that carried, he was flogged uh, but at the same time, you know, he loved his grandson. He loved his son-in-laws, and that's going to affect how he sort of sees his responsibility on Vietnam. Yeah, they
1: were both uh, headed to Vietnam that year, weren't they? Yeah,
0: and that affected him. And you know, the tears that he sheds for Robert Kennedy, his horrible political rival, when mm-hmm. he's in the, uh, you know, I'm, we'll probably jump. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but you know, I, I, I worked trying to present this side because the side we always have is sort of the caricature the crass uh sort of you know uncouth uh guy from central texas Mm. and i tried to sort of remedy that to a point also
1: and and you did a good job i felt compassion for him you said he got humbled but when we get to the democratic convention we're going to see how he wasn't fully humbled at yet no. but but let's let's go next to the, to tet offensive this is a, a part of history that that is burned into my memory because i was getting close to draft age when all this was going on and uh, the Kisan assault was a distraction that kept people from knowing that the viet cong and the north vietnamese were moving into areas where they could do the tet offensive which attacked a hundred cities in south vietnam
0: exactly and it shocked the nation Mm-hmm. uh... johnson in both west warland the u.s commander in vietnam it's sort of been uh... raising the standard that you know we've got them sort of where we want them. and then suddenly here uh... breaks out this whole offensive, where they're attacking every major provincial capital, uh, inflicting their within the boundaries of the American embassy in Saigon. And it completely shocks the country, because they have been listening and thought, well, things are going fairly well. If, if that's the case, why all of a sudden can they launch this? And now, we know it's a tactical defeat for the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong, uh, who take a beating, but it is a strategic victory in many ways, because it, ca- it creates even more of a crisis of confidence in the United States and ultimately uh, is going to have a dramatic effect on President Johnson himself. Mm
1: -hmm. So uh, finally, when you look at all the evidence, were we just unclear as to how big the Tet offensive had impacted us?
0: Well, I don't know if it's that. It's just happening so quickly. And, you know, there's so many different sources coming at it. And, you know, the credibility of the president has been called into question. The pre- credibility of the generals has been called into the question because they had said they, they didn't predict this. Now, some of them had rumblings of it. They knew something was going to happen. But, you know, it was still a shock. Mm-hmm. and it was a shock to the nation and they're like well we you know we want to get out of this you know we want to stay and we want to make sure south vietnam stands but if this is going to be the case and that's you know the famous walter Cronkite uh statement you know after he comes back from uh after tet and says you know we're not winning this is basically a stalemate. He didn't say we were losing, but he said it was at least a stalemate. And many of the American people are starting to question, uh, if it's a stalemate, what's it going to involve? And, you know, the generals asked for 206,000 more troops, which would have put us over 700,000. And But they can't make any promise that any kind of victory can be uh, obtained.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and and when they, the, they pulled back on that number, it felt like they were just sending more people to to be casualties because they, they couldn't rescind the number they wanted to send.
0: Right. Well, and then they're going to blame the uh, politicians for not giving them all. A, but, you know, Johnson finally put his foot down. He gave them 30000 more. Mm-hmm. But, you know, 206000 more, and they can't even guarantee anything. He started the question. You know, Clark Clifford, the new uh, Secretary of Defense, questions it. I mean, even the wise men led by Dean Atchison, the former Secretary of State, go to the president by late March and say, we just don't think this is sustainable. Mm-hmm. You cannot continue this. And we need to start negotiating and we need to withdraw in some shape or form. And that's going to be the path chosen after Ted.
1: Well, I'll stay with the theme of Vietnam a little bit. There's a couple more things I, w- I was curious about. One is I'm always wondering why the bombing was not effective enough. And they, they use the stopping of bombing to encourage Hanoi to come to the table. They promised that from time to time. But no matter how much bombing they did, it didn't stop the Tet offensive. It didn't stop... Uh, it didn't stop the efforts on the part of the other side from continuing, continually harassing our forces there.
0: Well, you know, i am actually just finished a Military History of the United States for uh, Oxford University Press that we'll have out in the uh, early next Fantastic. year.
1: Fantastic. I'll interview you on that book next. That's well, great. I'll
0: be happy to do so <laughs> on that. It's a co-author book with a, a good fellow Texan named Gene Smith up at TCU and another a colleague. But, you know, I talk about this, and actually I'm writing a little pop-up about the controversy of how valuable is bombing. And we know in World War II it was greatly exaggerated. The strategic bombing surveys showed that. Well, we dropped two and a half more times bombs on uh, Southeast Asia, and it just has limited capabilities to force the enemy. If anything, sometimes it steadies their resolve. And I've always joked, and when I teach my classes, it's hard to bomb somebody back into the Stone Age when they started there.
1: Right. And,
0: you (laughs) know— Targets are just not there. The uh, will of the people, you know, when you're being bombed, it, 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 I, we know this from even the Germans. The Germans didn't surrender because of the bombing, they surrendered because the Russian troops were on their soil. Yeah, exactly. And we were driving, and, you know, we know, again, the strategic bombing uh, survey, which was one of the major people who led that after World War II, was a guy named Robert McNamara. Mm-hmm. He should have known better. Mm-hmm. But we kept having this belief that our technology could overwhelm the enemy, and it just was not that effective.
1: In, in, in tracing the, the Vietnam story through, through various other things that you talk about in various chapters, I was interested in this whole notion of the bombing and the Paris peace talks. So I remember those days when they debated over the shape of the table forever right. and you know all of those things. But I didn't remember that once Nixon was the— Uh, nominee, he sort of sabotaged the possibility for Johnson to end this war.
0: Oh, no, there's no doubt about it. And I, you know, I can't directly link Nixon to the whole sabotage, but we definitely can link the uh, Nixon campaign to the process And, and what we call the Chenault affair. And, you know, President Johnson knew that the Nixon campaign was sabotaging it. He had FBI reports And FBI wiretaps on uh, Anna Chenault, who was one of the people working for the Nixon campaign, as well as the South Vietnamese embassy in uh, in, uh, Washington, D.C. And we also had the presidential palace in Saigon bugged. So he knew what was going on, and he issued warnings, and he actually provided the information to uh, Richard uh, or to Hubert Humphrey, who chose not to use it. And Johnson ultimately doesn't pull the trigger, although he's tempted a number of times to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does appear that there was collusion between one of the campaigns and a foreign government to undermine the peace process, which in ultimately they did so because they were afraid there was going to be a breakthrough that would aid Hubert Humphrey, who very cl- came very close to defeating Richard Nixon. Hmm.
1: And and it didn't look like it at the outset, but we'll get to that too. Um, yep. The other thing that that I noticed was that at some point, LBJ used the phrase "peace with honor," which was ultimately what Nixon and Kissinger used to frame the withdrawal from Vietnam. I didn't know that he had used the term "peace with honor."
0: Well, and he also used the concepts so of what we later will characterize as Vietnamization, mm-hmm. uh, putting more fighting uh, responsibility on the South Vietnamese. And so there's a lot of the groundwork that's laid for Nixon uh, in the Johnson uh, presidency, although many argue that had Johnson, you know, for or if Humphrey would have won, we probably would, would have withdrawn quicker, not expanded the war into Cambodia and Laos, and ultimately uh, would not have seen the uh, constitutional crisis of Watergate, which was created to a large degree by Nixon's paranoia related to Vietnam.
1: Mm-hmm okay let's let's do a landmark moment on march 31st because i can still hear those words echoing in my mind i've seen the video numerous times where he will not seek nor will he accept the nomination of, uh, of an, another term as president
0: yeah that is a You know, it's an inflection point in American history, I would argue, Uh, a significant one, especially in modern American history. Uh, His decision to withdraw is definitely going to change the dynamic of what the presidential race is going to look like in 1968. And he does it, I think, for two reasons. One of the major ones is he does genuinely want to focus on trying to create a peace in Vietnam before he leaves. The second one is his health issues, Mm -hmm. Uh, the health issues that he worried that he was going to be either die of a heart attack which he'd already had a major coronary in 1955 or he was going to be incapacitated like Woodrow Wilson was and that scared him I think more than death Mm -hmm. and so he made a decision to try to remove himself to focus on peace and Vietnam and also try to save himself uh ironically he dies almost three uh four years to the date after Richard uh, Nixon is inaugurated on the uh, right as Richard Nixon is inaugurated for the second term, which would have been the end of his uh, you know two and a half terms mm-hmm. uh, he dies.
1: Yeah, so, and I, I think uh, I want to bring up Lady Bird here because when you mentioned with the heart attack of 55 and his diet changed, Lady Bird got him to stop smoking. She had him eating more vegetables. His dessert was jello. <laughs> he was, right. It was a different. Oh,
0: and he was miserable. <laughs> this was a good Texas boy who liked his chicken fried steaks, and, you know, as and things like that but boy he got put on a strict diet and he did not appreciate that and I think he missed smoking more than anything which we can talk about a little bit later what he does on his last day in office
1: mm-hmm. well he um uh, he he uh, lady bird I, I've, I've found a new fondness for lady bird uh, in this book I mean there, there were a lot of times when her character and her insights were just dead on very ar- articulate and very c- uh, clear and she was also such a great support to him
0: right she was his uh, yes, he may not have always been as good to her as he des- as she deserved, but you know I-, I always say if you really want a great, great insight into the Johnson years, read her diaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there's a thing called the White House Diary, and each night she would transcribe it, or she wouldn't transcribe it, she'd speak into a recorder, then it would be transcribed. And if you really want to see what was going on behind the scenes, Lady Bird's insights are in. Uh, incredible. I and it's probably my if I had to pick one doc, uh, one thing to use to try to create a understanding of the Johnson years that would be it.
1: Mhm. So uh, this mo- monumental moment, March 31st, which did change politics forever when yes. when he said I'm not going to seek re-election and we can talk about the convention and what he did there, but he had a spring in his step for a while because he knew he could focus on the issues that mattered to him most, and he was going to take care of his health, and everything was running hunky-dory. And he even went to see the Archbishop installed in New York, and he got a meeting with uh, U.N. Secretary Uthant, where he was encouraged that Hanoi wanted to negotiate. So he was so happy for four euphoric days, and then they shot Martin Luther King dead.
0: Yes, and that is a dramatic transformation, and we know what happens as a result of that. You know Johnson and King had had a falling out mainly uh, over Vietnam, but you know this just devastates the country. And Johnson understands to a degree. Uh, you know I find the behind the scenes aspects of that story extremely important because he's empathetic with the young African Americans that are out in the streets rioting. Now is he condemning them? Is he trying to quell the rioting? Definitely. But does he say? You know the, one of the points he's having a conversation says, "I understand why these young men are angry." Uh, you know, if you'd shot my leader, I'd be looking and thinking, "Well, they're coming for me next." Uh, you know, and he shows some empathy. He also makes a very, and this is where restraint comes in again, when he has to order in federal troops into Chicago and into Baltimore and even D.C. Ten blocks from the White House, the uh, the few, uh, you know, the uh, plumes of smoke are up. Uh, he makes sure that it doesn't turn into a bloodbath. Mm -hmm. And even though others are saying, well, why don't you just shoot the looters? Uh, Robert Byrd from West Virginia is saying, shoot them. Only shoot them in the knees, but shoot them anyway. And don't shoot the children, but shoot the adults. And so you got this kind of stuff playing out. But Johnson's sitting there trying, and he's also trying to think: How do I honor Martin Luther King? And he's going to use this as impetus to uh, pass the civil rights legislation in 1968, uh, the Fair Housing Act.
1: Yeah, and, and, and that's that's a beautiful thing. He 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 knew opportunity when he saw it, and he like with the assassinations of JFK in those moments there's a chance to make a difference and to change things, and, and the Fair Housing Act was one of them. He wanted much more than that, but he did yeah. get a win. There were, of course, the the race riots, and, and the, those darkened the clouds over, over Johnson's administration, too.
0: Yeah. Um, well, and then again, you see Strom Thurmond right at the end of Martin Luther King's, you know, right soon after Martin Luther King's buried, sending out a note to his constituents saying, see, this is what happens when you give these people to give it to him too quickly. And he uses that. And it's basically classic race baiting. Uh, unfortunately, there will be used time and time again.
1: Yeah. So then we move to June. MLK's death is still fresh in people's minds. And uh, LBJ meets with, with RFK, who... He didn't really get along with all that well.
0: <laughs> no, they didn't get along at all. In fact, I put them up there, their political rivalries up there with Aaron Burr and uh, Alexander Hamilton as far as if you look in the long array of U.S. history. Mm-hmm. It was bitter. Yeah. Uh, it's as bitter a rivalry as you will see in modern American politics, maybe only uns- uh, surpassed here recently by John McCain and Donald Trump.
1: Yes, yes. The, the, the thing that struck me about this meeting, which took place so close to the end of RFK's life, was that uh, they still were suspicious of each other, and LBJ recorded the meetings, but Bobby carried a scrambler in the meeting to prevent recordings.
0: Oh, isn't that a classic scene? I mean, he comes and says, give me the transcription of the tapes, and there's nothing on them, because Bobby did not trust him enough that he did. He brought a scrambler in. And that's sort of the way their relationship went uh again it was started by bobby in 1960 uh but it remained bitter throughout but i do think when robert is assassinated johnson rises to the occasion no kidding got a,
1: he was I've heroic got a, there
0: oh i've got a great piece coming out in the washington post hopefully in the next couple of weeks where i actually do compare it and i do use johnson as an example of what donald trump should do vis-a-vis uh john mccain mm-hmm. don't think it's going to happen but that's I'm using that as an example who put his anger and his animosity towards a political rival to the back burner to serve the family and to serve the country to try to help us walk through this horrible time.
1: Yeah, it's interesting in the news, you know, that John McCain has disinvited mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Trump to and his it, funeral. It, yeah, uh, and it's it, it's on both sides, but unfortunately, the president, uh, current president, has done a lot to antagonize that relationship and continues to do so. Mm-hmm. But someone Johnson from Arizona uh, sees on a daily basis.
1: I'm sure you'd see more than I do. It, it, Johnson uh, was so compassionate with the Kennedy family around this loss. It was it was just. Uh, uh unbelievable what he was willing to do for someone who who was clearly an enemy and clearly not trusted and clearly opposed to most of what johnson was up to and yet he was so good to the family uh arranging things for him to be buried in in the uh, next to john and and uh just taking care of them just
0: nurturing them right well and you know Again, I think in this chapter you really see the private side of Johnson that could show compassion, could show empathy. The tears that he sheds on the way to Arlington, and it's about Rose Kennedy and all that she's lost and all that she has endured. And you never saw Johnson cry in public. Uh, and this is one of the few times that I've come across where he cried in private. Uh, but he is genuinely hurt by this. And, you know, the Kennedy people try to play it off as, you know, um, crocodile, too but I think that is a mistake on their part. Uh, And, you know, they try to say, well, at one point he was asking, is Bobby dead yet? Is Bobby dead yet? And, you know, that was really about what do I do next if he is dead? Uh, And they've tried to take and turn that that this was a guy just trying to see, you know, make it out that he was happy that Bobby was almost dead. And that's not the case. There is nothing in the record that supports that. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I don't think we'll get to Czechoslovakia or the Abe Fortas affair. But I did want to touch on the Democratic Convention in 68, because in Chicago, there was violence, there was turbulence, there was upset. And a lot of what happened in the Democratic Convention was orchestrated by Johnson, who, insisted that he was staying out of it.
0: Yeah, he insisted he was staying out of it, but don't you love that scene where he's having his aides uh, talk to the people in uh, Chicago. He's on the other phone, so he could actually deny that he was actively involved, even though he was, Mm -hmm. and that he wasn't directly involved. And so, yeah, Johnson creates a lot of problems for Humphrey, and it is sad because Humphrey had fashioned a compromise on the Vietnam plank that would have ended a lot of the animosity on the floor, but Johnson torpedoes it. Johnson has still in the back of his mind that somehow some Democrats are going to call him to come up on that Tuesday of his 60th birthday and rescue the party. And, of course, he says he's not going to accept but he wants to be asked. And unfortunately that contributes to many problems, including the choice of Chicago as the place for the convention, which Humphrey did not want. He wanted it in Miami understanding you could get further away from the anti-war protesters by going to Miami as opposed to staying in Chicago, and also being there where he knew the Chicago police force under Mayor Daley was going to respond negatively.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, he you show the compassion of the man, but also the ego of the man, and it's a, it's a really interesting read. Uh, HHH didn't get the support he deserved, and uh, oh. uh, it's too bad. Um, but it did change politics forever, and so did the Southern strategy, and so did a lot of things that were part of right. this time frame. But 68 was a year like no other, and I don't know how he survived it, given that he'd already had a heart attack. Uh, yep. I think Lady Bird must have had something to do with that.
0: Well, and, you know, I, as I said, on January 20th when he leaves the White House, when he gets on the airplane for the last trip down to Texas, the first thing he does is he lights a cigarette. And we know four years later he's dead of a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And it it broke his heart in many ways, and the health issues just contributed to that. And it was sad to see that because he had accomplished so much, but unfortunately it still came back to Vietnam being the thing that undermined him on so many levels.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. We've been talking with Dr. Kyle Longley. The book is LBJ's 1968, Power Politics and the Presidency in America's Year of Upheaval. It's a fascinating read, and I recommend it highly. Uh, if you don't catch our regularly scheduled broadcast on public radio, i remind you that you can go to YouTube, Good Books Radio, Strong and Cook, and you can pick up the uh, interviews there. Thanks for listening, and make it a great day.